Thank you, Amber. I, I kind of feel like royalty that she plays this song when I enter the sanctuary. I just, I know that's not true. I'm just a sinner saved by grace, but every now and then my ego needs stroking. So feel free to compliment me anytime you want. I'm waiting. <laughs> anyway, welcome to Grace Reformed Baptist Church. I love it that we're family. And I also love it that we're gathered here today not to be entertained but to worship the risen Lord through singing through prayer through offerings through hearing the preaching of the word and in the state of the world the state of America that's a true blessing so we should be thankful a few announcements we have a fellowship meal after church today so please come over even if you didn't bring anything remember we're Baptists we prepare twice as much and we have a members meeting our annual business meeting that's going to start at 1:30. and the children are going to have youth choir practice at that same time so be prepared for that and mark your calendars for Tuesday because the Leightons are opening up their home if you've never been to the Leightons on a Tuesday night this time of year. It is a fantastic time and I highly encourage you to, to come out. And that's all I've got. Wayne has some more. Okay. Yeah, I hope you do come out Tuesday. We have a ton of kids come by our house, a couple hundred, and we play games with them, share the gospel with them is a good time. But also fellowship for our church members. We'll have uh, chili and hot dogs, I think. And so, uh, whether you want to, however you want to participate, you're all invited. So we, we do have a good time for that. And I do pray for these little ones that will be out that night. And I guess as I age, I just think more and more about their future and their life. And what they need is the gospel. And we'll share the gospel with them in little ways and, and also acts of kindness and pray that they might come to faith. And you never know, the seeds that planted now how they might flourish in days ahead. Uh, that really wasn't my big announcement, <laughs> but uh, any case, uh, but, it, but I have a lot to say, I always do. Um, you know, by the way, I, I went ahead and reprinted this uh, bulletin today, and it has the, uh, some information concerning Israel and to pray for them, and, and we've talked about that. Uh, ultimately, what we're wanting to do is to pray that they'll come to Christ, that as Romans says, that the deliverer will come from Zion and banish ungodliness from Jacob, and he'll take away their sin. They'll look on him whom they pierced and mourn for him as the firstborn son. That's what we're praying for. In fact, any kind of terrorist act or tragedy or event that goes about, it, it uh, gives us an opportunity to take a look at our own self and our circumstances and to make sure that we have our relationship right with God to bring about repentance and faith. Even though people might do things for evil, God certainly does all of them for good. My announcement was to really address some of those questions uh, that might be coming up, particularly with Israel, for example. What future do they have, if any, and how do they fit in uh, the end times, if you will, and a lo lot of information is out on that right now, some things quite speculative, other things quite dismissive, so 
We'll get an opportunity to talk about those things if you want to participate with me on that uh, for the next two months, November and December. Andy asked me to teach the, we call it the ministry training class. You might think of it as Sunday school hour. So I invite you to be a part of that. It's 945. Most of the time we'll be meeting over in the fellowship hall, except when we'll have church lunch like we did today. We'll meet in here. Most of the content will come from our doctrinal statement. We have a couple of pages on that concerning uh, what we call eschatology or the study of end times. So you can get your doctrinal statement that we have, look at the, some of the scriptures, and perhaps write down some questions that you might have or other questions that don't even come directly from this. Uh, we would like to address those. And you can email me directly if you have some uh, questions, concepts, topics, some things that you've heard you want addressed, uh, I'm free to do that. Uh, I have some ideas of my own, obviously, that I'd like to bring up, but if you have specific things, I, I'd be glad to uh, address those and discuss those with you. you. You might also notice that not everyone here will agree with absolutely everything uh, concerning what we uh, teach, but we do want you to know what we teach, and that's important. And I appreciate you being uh, both submissive and supportive to what we teach, even if we don't agree about every fine detail. And so we'll talk about that and how that works out as well. Today is Reformation Sunday, and you'll notice that in your worship folder. Reformation Sunday is uh, something that we bring up every year to remind us about some important truths. Ultimately, it is the gospel. Paul said in, first, in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, the, the gospel, at various points in time, and perhaps always since it's first come out, has been diluted and disordered to a great degree. One of the bright things about the Reformation, that period of history, was that that truth was re-emphasized. Uh, it, it, it wasn't lost, but it was nearly lost by the confusion of ritual and the confusion of just religious practices that obscured the gospel. Stephen Nichols wrote a nice little article to describe this day that we remember, Reformation Sunday, the last Sunday in the month of October, and because he's both succinct and very uh, clear on, on communicate this, I'll just read his article for you, and then I'll lead us into prayer, thanking God for the gospel. But I think he does a good job in explaining this particular day, and uh, this might be particularly helpful for those who haven't heard. So let me just read this article from Stephen Nichols concerning this day that we celebrate, Reformation Sunday. He writes, a single event on a single day changed the world. It was October 31st, 1517. Brother Martin, a monk, a scholar, he had struggled for years with his church, the church in Rome. He had been greatly disturbed by an unprecedented indulgence sale. 
The story had all the markings of a Hollywood blockbuster. Let's meet the cast. First, there is this young bishop, too young by church laws, Albert Maines, who not only was he bishop over two bishoprics, he desired an additional archbishopric over Maines. This, too, was against church laws. So Albert appealed to the pope in Rome, Leo X. And from de' Medici family, Leo X greedily allowed his taste to exceed its financial resources. Enter the artists and the sculptors, Raphael and Michelangelo. When Albert of Mainz appealed for papal dispensation, Leo X was ready to deal. Albert, with papal blessings, would sell indulgences for the past, present, and future sins. All of this sickened the monk, Martin Luther. Can we buy our way into heaven? Luther had to speak out. But why October 31st? November 1 held a special place in the church calendar as All Souls Day, or you may know it as All Saints Day. On November 1st, 1517, a massive exhibit of newly acquired relics would be on display at Wittenberg, Luther's home city. Pilgrims would come from all over, genuflect before the relics, and take hundreds, if not thousands of years, off their time in purgatory. Luther's soul grew even more vexed. None of this seemed right. Martin Luther, a scholar, took quill in hand, dipped it in his inkwell, and penned his 95 thesis on October 31, 1517. These were intended to spark a debate, to stir some soul-searching among his fellow brothers in the church. The 95 Theses sparked far more than a debate. The 95 Theses also revealed the church was far beyond rehabilitation. It needed reformation. The church and the world would never be the same. One of Luther's 95 Theses simply declares, the church's true treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That alone is the meaning of Reformation Day. The church had lost sight of the gospel because it had long ago papered over the pages of God's word with layer upon layer of tradition. Tradition always brings about systems of works, of earning your way back to God. It was true of the Pharisees. It was true of the medieval Roman Catholicism. Didn't Christ himself say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Reformation Day celebrates the joyful beauty of the liberating gospel of Jesus Christ. What's Reformation Day? It's the day the light of the gospel broke forth out of darkness. It was the day that began the Protestant Reformation. It was a day that led to Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, and many other reformers helping the church find its way back to God's word as the only authority for faith and life, and leading the church back to the glorious doctrines of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and I'll add to the glory of God alone. It kindled the fires of missionary endeavors. It led to hymn writing and congregational singing. 
It led to the centrality of the sermon and preaching for the people of God. It's a celebration. It's a celebration of theological, ecclesiastical, and cultural transformation. And I stand with him and say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we magnify your grace demonstrated as an aspect of your glory. You are a merciful God, faithful God, a patient God, a just God, a kind God. And beyond all of our imaginations, we could go on and describe some of those aspects that reflect the brilliance of the beauty of who you are. But all of this comes about by you. And that power of that gospel which we have heard, Christ's word, and by hearing comes faith. And Father, that faith is not in and of ourselves for us to try real hard to accept and to believe, but it comes by your grace and your grace alone. And so I thank you for the, the beauty of your grace, the illuminating power of the light of the glory of Christ Jesus, who though not seen, we love. We gather together as your people this day, reaffirming that great truth of this simple gospel, that Jesus lived, God incarnate, that he came and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. He lived a perfect and righteous life, a life for which we cannot live, which we have not lived, which we will not live, but Christ alone lived that perfection. He has granted us the garments of his glory to wear in your presence and atoned for our sin through his death and died for every one, past, present, and future. Not paid by an, an indulgence or some sort of ritual response, but through the reality of Jesus Christ who really did atone and said, it is finished. Oh, what a glorious thought. In demonstrating it's finished, he rose again from the dead. And us in Christ, we will rise as well. And he ascended now into the throne of, the, of, of glory. And it is to that throne that we looked, to our sovereign Lord, and confess Jesus this day as Lord. May you be praised in your church. May your gospel go forward and bring many sons and daughters to glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Second Samuel 22, verses 2 and 3 says, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. Mighty fortress is our God. Let's stand together and take our hymn books and turn to number 656. And we'll sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God.
354, 354, Christ has made the sure foundation. Ephesians 2.20, we are built upon the foundation, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. 354. Fifty-six, four hundred and fifty-six. How firm a foundation! Lord, your word is forever; it is firmly fixed in heaven. Psalm one nineteen.
morning, church. What a beautiful day to praise the Lord. This morning, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. In your pew Bible, if you don't have your Bible this morning, that's going to be page 929. Again, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. In your pew Bibles, that's going to be page 929. Uh, as everybody's turning there, I just want to read a word of encouragement from uh, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, highly encourage his morning and evening Bible studies if you get time. It's fantastic. Uh, great way to start your day and a great way to end the, end the evening. But uh, just a short encouragement from, uh, I think, two days ago, uh, Spurgeon and morning's evening. Um, encouragement in our sanctification and our righteous anger against our sin. The believer is a new creature. He belongs to a holy generation and a peculiar people. The Spirit of God is in him, and in all respects he is far removed from the natural man. But for all that the Christian is a sinner still. He is so from the imperfection of his nature and will continue so to the end of his earthly life. Every night when we look in the glass or the mirror, we see a sinner and had need to confess. We are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Oh, how precious the blood of Christ to such hearts as ours. How priceless a gift in his perfect righteousness, and how bright the hope of perfect holiness hereafter in the life to come. Even now, though sin dwells in us, its power is broken. It has no dominion. It is a broken back snake. We are in bitter conflict with it, but it is a vanquished foe or enemy that we have to deal with. Yet a little while left, and we shall victoriously enter the city where nothing is defiled. Let's read Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Forgive me if I butcher some of these names, but I'm going to do my best here. So... <clears throat> this is the word of God. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So after the Berean, son of Pherus, accompanied him, and of the Thess Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where he stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over, him and taking him in his arms said do not be alarmed for his life is in him and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed and they took the youth away alive 
and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day to Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos, and the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for the many blessings, God, again, that, that we don't deserve, God. We're lost sinners apart from Jesus Christ. We're totally depraved in our sin. Lord, we thank you for the sound today of children in the church. We pray for more sounds of children in the church, Lord. We pray that you give us guidance as parents and authority figures to live the gospel in front of our children and preach the gospel to our children, Lord. We pray for the salvation of these young ones today, Lord. Help us live faithfully in our homes and to set a godly example that glorifies Christ alone and salvation alone in Jesus Christ. Help us to be servants, Lord, in all aspects of our lives this week, servants of the gospel of Christ, servants to one another in the church, servants in home and at the workplace. We thank you again, Lord, for a church that desires sound teaching and admonition of your word. We ask, Lord, that you continue bringing us more brothers and sisters in Christ who desire holiness and have a hunger for your word. We desire today, God, to exalt your name and ask that you open our hearts, Lord, first in song, but most of all, in your word. We ask, Lord, that you break hard hearts today and save anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Give us, Lord, opportunities and strength this week to proclaim your name in the marketplace, in the workplace, to our families. Help us to be a beacon, Lord, that the world sees a set-apart people living for the world to come, not for the world now, in Christ alone. We ask, Lord, that you bless the offering today and let us use it for your name alone. It's in Christ's name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Forty-six. The church is one foundation. No one can lay any other foundation. That 
was that what has been laid, that is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians Blake, Amber, and Church. It is a glorious church. Glad to be a part of the body of Christ. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're continuing in this section here, Hebrews chapter 9. And I keep adding subpoints to it. <laughs> As we move along, this kind of moves us to a, a series, if you will, a portrait of Christ. It's a portrait of Christ pictured in the Old Testament. And this is what much of the volume of the Old Testament does. It was sort of a show-and-tell religion, if you will to depict in a physical way these great spiritual realities. And here we embark in chapter 9 in the book of Hebrews. This preacher is preaching to ostensibly a Hebrew audience, Jews. He warns them not to walk away from Christ and go back to the rituals of Judaism because they did have a point and a purpose, and that was to point, point to the reality, the very person of Jesus Christ. So what are you going back to? Christ is the substance. Those that prefigured him were simply the symbols. 
We're going to look this morning at this tabernacle and specifically the holy place in verse 2 that's mentioned. It's the tent of meeting that they're talking about, the tabernacle. The tent of meeting was a structure that they carried along with them from their bondage in Egypt in which they were delivered through their wilderness journey moving on to the promised land. And I think you get that picture right there. Freed from bondage, journey, sojourning, and then finally full deliverance. God was with them at all times and symbolically in this tabernacle, this tent of meeting. It's symbolic, and you can find it mentioned there in verse 9 of Hebrews 9. It's that it is symbolic for now. It pointed to the reality which is now. This design of the tabernacle, I went ahead and drew a little outline for you. Actually, I copied and pasted it to tell you the truth. On uh, the back of your worship folder, young folks might have a good time with that. To, you might want to redraw that yourself and, and make a coloring sheet. For a, adults, you might want to do the same. No. The, um, it just gives you a, an idea of what's going on because they would have been very familiar with this. We're not quite as much. Notice here that in this design, you, you have, uh, and he doesn't enumerate, he being the preacher in Hebrews 9, he doesn't enumerate this first entrance way, but, but I have because they would have been familiar with it. He's not pointing to it. He'd leave some things out, but I just want you to get the bigger picture. It has, it has a gate to the, uh, off this east side, if you will. You come into this large courtyard. This courtyard would have been uh, like a fence, but it's open. It's tall. It presents the holiness of Christ. You come to this altar where the sacrifice is done, the basin is the laver, it, it, it held water for cleansing. And then you get into the structure proper itself, and there's two parts to that, a holy place and a most holy place. There, there's a door to get in each one, if you will, an entryway. The gate would be number one, to, then you to get into the tent called the holy place, that section. There's a door there, it's a veil. There's another one that separates the holy place from the most holy place. So those are technically three entrances there. Each one, as you enter into the presence of God, increases the intimacy and the fellowship, if you will. There, there's an increasing aspect moving from the courtyard to the holy place to the most holy place. And along with that, an increasing level of restrictions. You had to come through the gate to begin with to get into the courtyard. And I've talked about that last week, about these three entrances, if you will, and thinking of them in that term, and access to God as expressed by Jesus Christ, who says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. All of those entranceways pictured the one way, th that is, Jesus Christ. 
And the way you would come in that entrance, if you see, first it is through the blood. That's what you meet in that way. You would meet that brazen altar to provide atonement for sin. And then this laver, this water for cleansing. This next entrance then to get into, into the tent proper itself, the holy place, it is the true holy place. And not anyone can go in. It was restricted to get into the holy place. You had to be a priest. You had to be part of that family. As God has made us, as we'll look into, a kingdom of priests unto God, and therefore having access to God in that way as it is represented here symbolically. Let's go ahead and refresh our memory by reading this in context, and then we'll flesh this out to some degree and focus on the light of Christ primarily today. Verse 1 in Hebrews 9. He goes on and says, well, now this first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place for holiness. A tent was prepared. The first section in which there was a lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain, and that's what I numbered as three, the second curtain called the most holy place, having a golden altar and of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which there is a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He doesn't want to get into detail of these things, but I will to a greater degree, primarily because we're not as familiar and I do want you to connect the Old Testament to the New, which, again, we're not as familiar, so I will spend a little bit more detail than he does with them. They would have been very familiar with all of this. He says these preparations, now he talked about the structure, now he's moving on to the practice here. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. Note that. Who's going in? It's the priests into that first section. They perform the ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he, but once a year, and not ta without taking blood, for which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They were only symbolic of what actually would, Christ would. Get it? Instead, they just deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. And that is now. Let us pray. Father, I pray that you will grant us insight into your holy word. May it accomplish what you desire. Bring many to faith and faithfulness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you look at the diagram or just have it in your mind, we're moving on to the tent 
proper, if you will, it's essentially 45 by 15, and then 15 feet tall, the way we would measure. Two sections, the first section there, the holy place, which we'll talk about today, is 30 by 15, and the back section called the most holy place is smaller, it's 15 by 15. And he doesn't provide much detail, as I mentioned, because they are very familiar. We are not, so we'll look at a little bit of the detail. Notice here in our text, just to help explain the text, which they didn't need this explanation, but we might, just to note, and we'll address this in greater detail later, but notice here that the holy place, if you look at your diagram, it has three items, but he's only mentioning two. He says this section has a lampstand and a table. It's called the holy place. And then he's speaking of the most holy. He says verse 3, there's a second curtain called the most holy, and it has the golden altar of incense. And maybe you thought I drew it wrong, or maybe you think he made a mistake. The preacher, trust me, the preacher didn't make a mistake. He knows what he's talking about. This, he associates the, the incense altar, if you will, which stood right in front of that veil with that most holy place. That purpose of the incense to begin with was to make preparations for the high priest to actually go in. He had to take incense off of that altar and in a, in a pan, essentially, and put it into that room ahead of him and fill that most holy place up with smoke for him to even come into that room. And so that was only done, if you notice in our text, which he, he mentions, it's only done what? Once a year. So that's the day he's talking about here, is the day in which that purpose for that incense is actually manifest as it's brought into the most holy place. It's associated with it there. Now, as I mentioned in just beginning here, too, something else to notice, that to get into the holy place, that first section, you had to be a priest. Anybody just couldn't go in. It is a greater level of intimacy. There, there are those objects and artifacts in there which we'll discuss, but they aren't for the crowd. They aren't for everyone. And again, we can't push all of this symbolism and analogy too far, but we can explain it from what Scripture says about it, and from that source we do know. But the, the point I'm making here is that intimacy to that level, to, to this holy place, is, is not for the world at large, if you will, the general public, this is limited to those who are in the family, a priestly family. Now, at this point, I do invite you to hold your place and move to 1 Peter chapter 2. Many of you have studied it in our ministry training class, and it's helpful. So let me just highlight a verse that hopefully you have looked at and talked about to some degree, and you can look at it at reference later. Because here is a commentary then on what this pictures, and I think you'll see the connection, 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'm at verse 9. Here's Peter talking to Christians, and his Description of the Christian is this. You're a chosen race. Okay. 
get the symbolism and connection to Israel as Israel is a chosen race, a chosen people, group. Those that are in Christ are said to be then chosen. And beyond that, notice the next phrase, a royal priesthood, and he adds a holy nation, someone who has been made holy, and beyond that, given this role as a priest, a royal priest, chosen by God, a specific people then chosen for his own possession. Now, I just want to address something briefly that that Rome really has obscured to a great degree, and it does go with the gospel, mostly grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That, that's fundamental to it. But they also have some other doctrines that they emphasize that we would reject. And one is the notion of who a saint is, and the other is who a priest is. They've come up with a tradition of men that really is a doctrine of the devil. Let me tell you this right now. If you're in Christ, you have been made holy. Oh, you may have remaining sin, as Rodney talked about and we're dealing with, of course. However, Satan been, has been fatally crushed. Christ is conquered. And positionally in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are holy. And, and that is the motivation for us then practically to work out that salvation through the power of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate who we actually are. You're a saint of God. A saint, as Rome has tried to pointed out as someone who is engaged in, in special acts and, and maybe they've done a miracle along the way. I'll tell you, the miracle is that Christ saved you. That's the miracle. The miracle is he's brought you from death unto life and made you a saint. Th this is what the apostles taught. Just about every epistle, just about, and I'll read a couple, just you don't have to turn there, I'll just read a few in your mind because, you know, you've read through the Scripture. Paul would tell this church at Rome in 1-7 about those who are loved by God and called to be saints. That's the chosen part, to be what? Holy. Saint just means holy. Called to be saints. Grace and peace to you. Of course, they have been given grace and manifested peace because of Jesus Christ to this church at Corinth who really struggled a lot in waywardness. And much of First and Second Corinthians deals with some of the problems within the church, and yet those who were truly regenerate were done so by the will of God, Second Corinthians 1, 1. He talks to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, all of them in that region, not, not just a single one, but all of them. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, to this church at Ephesus, Paul is teaching them. He says, who is it addressed to? To the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Philippians, to all the, one, one, to all the saints 
in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And he even addresses the overseers and the deacons. They're not necessarily saints. No, just joking on that. <coughs> All of them, including the leaders within the church, including the recognized servants. All the people are saints, not just special ones. And finally, Colossians 1, 2. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Again, faithful brothers and the saints, they're one in the same category. You get it? It's all of them. If you're in Christ, you have been chosen by him and made a holy people. That's who a saint is. A saint means holy, separated, set apart, sanctified, made holy before God, not because of what we have done, but what Christ has done. And so, to go into the intimate fellowship with God, as portrayed by this holy place, you need to be a saint. It's required. You need to be holy, because God is holy. And beyond that, you would also need to be a priest. Again, the idea of priesthood and the whole imagery of it um, with Rome is, is wrong. A priest is simply a mediator. Yes, there were specific ordinances at this time under the Old Covenant in which people functioned in those roles. Why did they function in those roles? It was to portray symbolically something else that God would do to those who are truly in Christ who have been made a priest. Notice in, in the text that I pointed out, 1 Peter 2, 9, you have been made a royal priesthood. Our union with Christ brings about that new relationship that we have now within the family of God. And not just a priest, but beyond that, a kingly priest. Why? Because that's who Christ is. He's both king and priest. Our union with Christ brings about that privilege. And therefore, we can have an intimate relationship with God into the holy place. Fellowship and communion with him. But it also brings about, I'll just add, responsibility. I mean even though they don't do it perfectly, but you could imagine if you were, we don't have a royalty in, in this land, but England, they still have some semblance of it, and those that are members of that particular family, they, they have a privilege, they get all kinds of resources, but they also have great responsibilities, don't they? They have to go to things and participate things. Oh, they have to act a certain way and behave a certain way, or otherwise they are outside of that. That's the responsibility. And here's, just to remind you, that's the responsibility that you have as being made a royal priest, a mediator, if you will. Not that you are the mediator, but used by Christ to bring about, and notice in our text, the gospel. You, you were not a people, but now you are a people. And wh why have you been chosen? Why are you a royal priesthood? What, why, why do you function as a holy nation that you may, here it is, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? That's the responsibility. It's also a privilege because you get to go in. 
You get to see it. And you get to enjoy what else is there in, as symbolically represented in this holy place. And note this word here, this phrase, this darkness to light. We'll get to that, maybe. That's where we're going. And this will connect. And I want that to connect in your mind of who you were, but who you are if you're in Christ. And this idea in going from darkness into then marvelous light and the, and the, the, the responsibility of that privilege to enter in is a response of saying, of, of speaking of his great glory. Those of us who have received the mercy of God and if you actually think about it, you can't help but passionately plead about it. You plead for what? Well, that others would find their help, their healing, their hope in Christ alone. Understanding his grace and mercy, it's, it's like finding a treasure in a field. And you would sell all you have to have it. It's like having the, the cure for everything that ails you. You know, the panacea. Well, I'll tell you what. It's Christ. It, it changes everything. This is the darkness to this marvelous light. And seeing this marvelous light then is the foundation by which we would then proclaim Christ. This tent that is prepared in Hebrews 9.2, this first section, he calls it the, the holy place. Remember the, how we began, and you can see it on your diagram there. Th there's first a barrier around the whole structure, a seven and a half foot wall, if you will. Think of it as a fence. And that area that's enclosed is the courtyard, and inside that are, is the tent proper. That courtyard, think about it, pictures Christ's earthly ministry. And I think it's really helpful to think of it in this term. He died on the cross. It's in full public view. It has a place of sacrifice. It has a place that provides cleansing for those that receive him. It, it portrays what Christ has actually accomplished and done. But this called first section, this holy place, what, is, what does it picture? It's got those elements in there, so, so what's, what's the point? I would argue that this pictures... His heavenly ministry right now. That's the connection you need to make in the holy place. The courtyard is this life, his ministry as he sojourned among us. But that secret place is heaven itself. If you remember, you don't have to turn back there, but you probably remember because I repeat it more than once. And I'm sure I'll go back to it again. But in the opening chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sin, right, the atonement, think of the brazen altar, 
Then what? It jumps to having sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So it looks to the ascension to the throne. You have the sacrifice that's on earth, and then you have the sitting down on the throne. Where, where is the throne? It's in heaven. And so that's what it's picturing there. After making purification, he's in his majesty, his glorious throne. And by the way, that's where Jesus is now. You want to know he is sovereign Lord. He's always been sovereign Lord. He took on the veil of flesh to walk among us to live a perfect life and to die. When that was accomplished, he ascended to the majesty on high. And every knee will bow and every tongue will one day confess. You either do it in salvation or in judgment. Today is not that day. Most people don't confess Jesus Christ as Lord. But nevertheless, he is still enthroned in heaven. And he is. Those who do, do so because of his glorious grace. Those who confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead will be saved. And what a beautiful idea that is. And that faith will come about by hearing and hearing by the words of Christ. And that's why I spend time preaching this and just reading it and reciting it. Not for my words, the wisdom for, for his. To penetrate deep in your soul that you would see Christ. You see, those who do see Christ do so because they've seen the light the glory of his presence. This, in a sense, the, the beauty of all of that is to those that, by faith, have been made priests to God, a royal people, chosen and elect, and can go into that very presence. And if you go into that presence, metaphorically, into heaven, there's three artifacts in this tabernacle room, and we'll get to the first one today. Three elements that communicate Christ's work on his behalf of his people right now, okay? It, as he's doing it right now, today. One is the lamp. The other is a table with bread on it. We'll get to that. And the third thing is this incense altar that I mentioned before. These artifacts are the picture, the true fellowship that those that are in Christ have with him. Notice the description, and here I'll go ahead and take the time so that you could connect this to your Old Testament reading. If you see, notice he addresses this lampstand, I'm in uh, Hebrews 9, 2, and we'll talk about that lampstand which represents the light of Christ. But I'll go ahead and look at it in its Old Testament context because I do, I do want you to make those associations and then also encourage you to read more about this through the book of Exodus. Much of it, it deals with this tabernacle, page after page, detail after detail. 
as I mentioned before, don't press these details too far because our point isn't to see the breaststroke, it's to see the painting. Okay. But 25 and 30 and verse 31 of Exodus will do. Exodus 25, 31, it describes his lampstand. And if you know what it represents, this is beautiful time reading and meditating even in the Old Testament. I'll read it for you. Exodus 25, beginning 31. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stems, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. Picturing it in your mind. There shall be six branches going out of its side, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made of like almond blossoms, each with a calyx and flower. On the one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower in the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand that there itself, there should be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyx and flowers and calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, whole. Whole of it shall single piece of hammered work of pure gold. Shall make seven lamps for it. And the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. And shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. God didn't just say, go, go, go stick some light in there. <laughs> you see all the detail? All of it points to this great beauty and this wholeness and the singularity. And yet the fullness of light is represented here in the seven bowls. It had a practical purpose, too. If you know, inside the tent, outside would have been all of these skins. Didn't really look that good. It was outside. Looked kind of rough. Inside was beautiful tapestry. But by the time you put all those layers on there and you went through the veil to get in there, it would have been kind of dark, <laughs> right? No windows in that room. You wouldn't have seen the beauty that exists in that room. I think I have a little diagram in the back that's a cutaway that you can see uh, a, a, an idea of what that might look like. But just in your mind, you can imagine it's great practical purposes here. This practical purpose to illuminate so that you can see. It's hard to have fellowship and communion with somebody in the dark, right? We turn on the lights. You need to see. If it's pitch black, you're not seeing anything. And it's hard to commune that way. Light is associated with God and particularly with Jesus Christ. And here I invite you to get jump now to the New Testament. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1 is a good section to go look at and think about. It describes Christ 
And I want to make an important point from this section, and so I invite you to look at it. John 1, you know, it begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning. With God, all things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, note, John 1. In him was life, and the life was the, do you see it? Light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's what light does. The purpose of it. It shines. And here it's pointing to a metaphorical sense here of shining in darkness. And notice here, it doesn't overcome it. Katalabano is the word there in, in Greek. And John does this a lot in his writing. He intentionally has a dual meaning, and here it is, a dual meaning as well. That's why some of your translations will say, didn't comprehend, and here, overcome. You know what it means? It means both. Okay? That's the authorial attempt. It, it's put that specific way to say this. Think of it this. Some people don't see it. It's a brilliant light, but they can't see it because you have to have eyes to see. You could be blind. You're not going to see it. And then the other aspect of it in, in not only under, not understanding it, but not overcoming it, it, it isn't as though it's not going to accomplish what it desires. As light expels darkness, and so the glory of Christ will expel everything else. He'll win. He'll win. But not everyone sees it. That's what it's setting up here. Jesus is that light, that light that is needed by men to, to live. Now, drop down to verse 9 in chapter 1. He says, he is the true light. Remember, I connected this. Jesus says, I'm the way and the what? The, the what? The, the truth. The, the truth, that, that truth is not only essentially correct in everything, but, but it's also, he's not the symbol, he's the substance. That's the impact of truth. He's the, he is the, the true light. He is the true light that gives light to everyone coming into the world. And then it describes then his incarnation, he was in the world. And... The world was made through him. Christ is the creator. And yet, can you imagine this? Yet the world did not know him. And you have recorded history of that in your New Testament. In fact, he says he came to his own people. These are the people that have been looking for that light to come, who had been symbolizing it through all of their rituals. And now the reality comes. He comes to his own people, and his own people do what? In general, there were few, but most did not receive him. But to those who do receive him, notice it. And what does it mean to receive? It means to have faith. It means to believe in his name. Confess Jesus Christ is Lord. See him as the true light. To them, what does he do? He gives them the right then to become children of God. Now you're in the family. Why? Because you're adopted into the family. You're united with Christ. Now as Christ is beloved, so we are beloved because we're in him. That's what it means to believe. 
And, and how, how is this going to come about? Verse 13. Well, it's not a blood. The priests in the symbol were a blood. You had to be in the priestly family, right? You couldn't get in there any other way. That's why Christ said to be after the order of Melchizedek. It's a new covenant. He's a new priest. He's a priest that preceded all, had no beginning and no end. It's not of the blood. It isn't by inheritance in that way. You're adopted. And nor is it the, the will of the flesh. In other words, it isn't by the work that you do, the rituals you do, the things that you practice and, and perform. That isn't going to bring about that union with God. Nor by the will of man. You're own, I really desire this on my own. It isn't. If you would desire it at all, it's because of God's grace. Granting to you, and that's what he ends with, but of God. All of this is God's work. Christ is that light. And if you're in John, I just want to show you a couple little passages to clarify what we mean by, we know Christ is the light. Okay, so, so what's going on here in this tabernacle imagery, which I said, at onset, that this pictures Christ right now in heaven. When he came to earth, he is that light, he is the true light, but most people reject it. In fact, that's what people are doing right now. You understand that? And I'm not going to diminish having fun and going places and doing whatever you want. But most people don't want to come to Christ and worship Christ. You, know, you hold a special day to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why we would have life and no one sees that light. We, we should be turning away people from church. I saw some guy put a little ad out of whatever he said. He's worried about all the decline of the church. And I just respond. I, I, I don't respond much to this stuff because you just store, stir up a hornet's nest. But I just respond find it this way. How about preaching Christ? Just, just let see if that works. Preach the word in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and, and patience. Try that. Try that for some sort of plan. Because Christ has a plan. He'll build the church and, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. You don't need to have a... It's nice to have a pretty presentation. I think that's really good. You need the light, and Christ is the light. Sorry for the tangent. In his earthly ministry, in the incarnation, Christ comes. He is that true light. He is the light of the world. Nobody sees it. Nobody sees it now. Nobody, you mean, I'm, I don't mean everyone. For, for the most part, people could care less. Think about all these Muslims that are killing one another and Jews and everybody else they can find. They don't see the light. They're blind. How about all the atheists out there, the secularists or whatever? You can go on and on. They, they miss it. Chapter 9 in John. I'm just going to show you a couple passages in John. Just I'll make this as brief as I can. John 9, 5. Jesus says, John 9, 5, As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Notice that, con that condition. As long as I'm here, I'm that light. 
He is that light. He's always that light. He's that light where? Where? In this world. Now, now jump over a couple chapters to chapter 12 and look at verse 35. I'll just show you the progression of how that's going in his teaching. So Jesus says to them, John 12, 35, the light that, speaking of himself, is among you for a little while longer. You, you know the rest of the story, don't you? He, he's talking about himself. I'm here. I'm only going to be here for a little while. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtakes you. Same analogy that he's using, from darkness to light. Christ is the light. I'm not going to be here that long. The one who walks in darkness, by the way, you don't know where you're going. Of course not. You're going to stumble and fall. That's the imagery. You're going to fail, not flourish. And jump down to verse 46, the same chapter. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Faith is what's required to see the light, to see Christ, the brilliance of who he is. The world in which we live, beloved, is a world of darkness then and now. And Christ would be taken out of the world. And so it, in the holy place, it doesn't picture the now it pictures uh, on earth, Christ on earth, he has ascended. So the picture of the light inside of the holy place is Christ on his throne in heaven. And you have to have eyes to see that light. Uh, I've run through a couple of verses, and you can turn along or just note them down because I'll probably go quick because of time because I want to get to a couple other things. And that is just the point I'm making is those that are outside, <coughs> they don't have the right or privilege, if you will. They're blinded and can't see the light. And this is a great problem when you go to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. Because then it's going to take a miracle of Christ, not your motivating factor that's going to bring them to Christ, you understand. Which is fine with me. Because all I have to do is preach Christ. <laughs> All I have to do is point to the way, the truth, and the life. But it's by Christ that they will come. Here's a passage that explains this in, couched in the idea of light and darkness and the veil as well, the, the, the covering, if you will. Imagine the door into the holy place. 2 Corinthians 4, and I'll begin at verse 3. You can listen. And if our gospel is veiled, which it, it kind of is, it's in the holy place. They can't see it. They can't see the light. It's veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing. And he explains, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There's a veil. They can't get in there. They can't see it. That's who Christ is. He's all glorious. And yet, we remain in darkness. So what does he do? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. 
That's all you do. You can do that. You can proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Ourselves as servants for, your, for Jesus' sakes. For, for it is God who said, let the light shine out of darkness. That he's pointing back to the very beginning when God says, let there be light. And there was light. It's going to take a miracle of God's power to accomplish this. It is that God who has shown, who said, let there be light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Does that explain a lot? That's why you see it. Because of God's glorious grace. And what do you see? Absolute glory and beauty. The, the, the holy place. The abode of God. Paul admonishes us, uh, us in Ephesians, as I've been teaching on Wednesday, if you, some of you remember, in Ephesians 5, 8. Prior to coming to Christ, it says you were in darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. So the admonition is to walk as children of light. Don't take part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them with what? Self-righteousness? No, the light of Christ. Jesus is the light for his saints. There's another passage in the book of Colossians. Colossians 1.11. He's talking about being strengthened with God's power according to his might and giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. Gets back to that same imagery of being adopted into the family and the expression of what does it look like? It looks like light. The holy ones and light. You, you get to go into the very holy place of God in communion with him. And he goes on to say in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Jesus would explain how this occurs. It is through the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. If you read through these lampstand description in Exodus 25, as I pointed out, and you look at that later on and think about that, we often call it a candlestick or a lampstand, but, but really it's, it's holding little bowls. That's the type of lamp. The bowls are filled with oil. The bowls needed, in their case, constant replenishing, so this is part of what the priests did. They go in that room and they keep filling it up with oil. The oil there symbolizes the very power of the Holy Spirit to bring about illumination. And here you can turn, because I'll look at two passages from John 14 if you want, or just listen. Here's Christ. <coughs> He's leaving. And they're sad, the disciples, because they want to commune with him. 
but they can. They can still be in the holy place with God. Verse 25 of chapter 14, he says, I've spoken these things why I'm still with you. He's physically with them, but he's going to send. He says, but the helper, and he explains who that helper is, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You're not afraid when the lights are on. Your little kid is afraid of the dark, accommodate him, put a little night light in there or whatever, help him out. Or maybe you're spooked going down to the cellar sometime. What do you want to do? Flip on the light. What a great analogy. That's what Christ gives his people. He gives them the light, the peace. The Holy Spirit has come. It's an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's Imagine the oil being poured in, but, but not manually, but continually, that continues to overflow and to fill. That, that's, the, that's the point. The, the, the Spirit is going to be, bring about that which is true, that which is right, and that which is powerful, that is divine enablement for the believer. Uh, I'll read another passage if you're in John it's 16, chapter 16, verse 12. He's like, I've got a lot to tell you right now, but you can't bear them. You can't bear everything. He'll have the apostles teach more about it. You, it's, it's like drinking from a fire hose, listening to Christ. They can only handle so much. He knows, but he wants to put out one more point in verse 13 of, of chapter 16. When the spirit of, of and notice, what, what's the spirit? The spirit of truth, reality, not just, just genuinely true, but, but who he is. He will then guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things to come. He will then glorify me. This is why all this hocus-pocus nonsense about this Holy Spirit is just that. You know why? how you can tell? In uh, Spirit-enabled power, it points to Christ. And you see, Christ, who is glorious, that's the point and purpose of the Holy Spirit, is to glorify Christ. He says, don't believe me, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he'll take what is mine, and then he will declare it to you. That's how you'll see the light, is through the mediating work of the Holy Spirit. In Acts and Pentecost. <clears throat> all that occurred there is called the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And that pouring out of the Spirit comes about a great presentation of who Christ is. If you're not sure? Go back. And we read through the first part of Acts. You can read it again and listen to what their sermon's about. What, are their, what is the message about? The message is about one person. It's Jesus Christ. My question is, have you seen the light? And I'll finish on this because I want to read it and you can read along with me. We'll get to this soon in our reading. We're reading through the history of 
the church in Acts, Sunday mornings. We're in 20. This is from 26, and we'll get to that soon. But here is Paul recounting how he came to Christ. He's proclaiming the excellencies of that light to a pagan king by the name of King Agrippa. He speaks of his call and how he came to see that light. And you can, we'll pick up in verse 12 of Acts 26. In this connection, he says, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. That is, he was going to go about to destroy the way. He says, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a, do you see it? Light from heaven. It was brighter than the sun. Brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. When he had fallen to the ground, he said, I, Then I, I heard a voice say to me in a Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the way, God's people. That is persecuting Christ. How? Because they're connected to Christ. Touch one of God's children, you're touching Christ. Touch one of my children. Oh, see what I would do. I'm a wicked man. But can you imagine what a great and glorious God do, would do with his children? Hmm. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to me, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand upon your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things which you have seen me and to do those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the people from the Gentiles and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to. Here it is. Look at the phraseology and get the connection. To open their eyes that so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Where is that place? It is the holy place. It is communion with God. It comes about through the proclamation of the gospel. This is what Paul was called to do. That's what he was doing. He did see the light. It is because of Christ. He opens the eyes. And we don't have to sit there and take a wrench or a screwdriver and try to pry the lids open. Just preach Christ. It works. You love Christ. And that's how it happened. When I was growing up, we, I loved to play gospel music with my dad. One of the songs that just comes to my mind was this simple gospel song. They should put it in our hymn book. <laughs> but I looked and they didn't. Oh, well. Can't put them all in. I wandered so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord. You know it. I saw the light. I saw the light. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now... I'm so happy. No sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord. 
I saw the light. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for the light of the glory of Christ that we have beheld his glory. And I pray that it will motivate us to, as children of God, to walk no longer in darkness but in light. And beyond that, to point out the excellencies of Christ in our daily life. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, let me give you a moment to think on these things where you are. If you haven't confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, you know you don't need a special ritual or walk up an aisle or do anything like that. You can do it right where you're at. Talk to him, not to me. And any response that you have for Christ, take a moment privately now. give you an admonition from Jesus Christ our Lord who is the light and has ascended on high and to his disciples he would say this beloved you are the light of the world a city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but put it on a stand it gives light to all who enter into the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In, in Christ's name, amen. All hail the power of Jesus' name. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. And Father, as we dismiss now, we pray that you would bless those who prepared the food as we go to the fellowship hall. We ask that you'd bless our time of fellowship and bless those who prepared the food. Bless the food to our bodies. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.